and welcome to the Currents of Folklore podcast. I am your host, Cherish Bishop. Today, I am meeting with folklorist Todd Lawrence. Thanks for tuning in. Well, thank you so much for meeting with me today, Todd. Would you please share with the listeners who you are? My name is uh, Todd Lawrence. I am uh, a faculty in the English department at the University of St. Thomas, which is in St. Paul, Minnesota. Um, I am a folklorist. I also do African-American literature and expressive culture. And I am also affiliate faculty in our program we call American Culture and Difference. And, um, you know, my work sort of is a little bit all over the place, but it it basically sort of uh, comes at the intersection of um, African-American culture um, and expression and ethnography. I I think like a lot of times I talk about myself as being an ethnographer. So I I have written and and continue to write a lot about ethnography itself as a methodology. But this latest project or this project that um, the book came out of was really sort of, it really helped me to think a lot about um, ethnography and and how we work as folklorists, how we work and and try to work in collaboration with the, the folks that we are um, writing about or writing with sometimes, you know, so, so yeah, that's me. Thank you. Can you share what drew you to study and practice folklore in the first place? Uh, well, I mean, I didn't, like a lot of people who end up in folklore, um, I did had no idea what it was. I mean, I didn't know anything about folklore. I was coming from a master's program in English at uh, Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska, and I was coming to the University of Missouri, and I actually was coming to study American realism. And uh, I got there, and I, you know, I had like the first semester, and, you know, it was fine and everything, but I saw these people around who were calling themselves folklorists, and um, Elaine Lawless, of course, was there, and Anand Prahlad, and John Foley was there um, too, and I didn't really know what it was. And uh, so I think probably I, you know, met some of these folklorists, student folklorists, and they were really cool. And eventually, like, I got invited to a party at Elaine's house, and uh, it was really, really fun. Like, everybody was really sort of genuine, and I don't know, I just really liked the people. And then Elaine said, you know, you have to take one of my classes, you have to take one of my classes. And I think the class I ended up taking was um, feminist ethnography. It was kind of like life-changing event, you know, like it was just kind of like, oh, this is where I should be because I had ideas about stuff that I wanted to think about and write about, but they didn't really fit into, at the time really, they didn't really fit into any kind of like specific disciplinary category. And I was really pretty quickly figuring out that I didn't really want to, I mean, American realism is fine, but it just wasn't the thing that like sort of really lit me up, you know? And when we would get into these conversations, I mean, we started talking about Zorno Hurston in a way that I had never talked about her and all this sort of stuff. I mean, it just got me on fire for it. And it, and, and I think maybe the, the most important thing was when I was studying folklore, you know, beginning to think about what it was and what it meant, um, I started to see that it was an academic discipline that connected to or would allow me to be connected to the practices of like my family, like people that I grew up with. Like I started to see like, oh, you know, my dad's like a proverb master, you know, like, and that, you know, so all these things that I had noticed people doing in my family, whether it was things that they were saying or practices, whether it was like farming and food ways, you know, like my grandfather, my dad's father had this beautiful garden, you know, that he kept and I just love that garden and he would can and he would do all this stuff, you know, and, 
and I started to see like, oh, that's like the, you know, that's that's folklore. Those are those are traditions. You know, those are traditional um, skills and knowledge. And it sort of made that stuff come alive for me in a way that, you know, I knew there was something important about it. I knew it had value, but I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't have words for it. I remember lots of times, like I remember talking with my dad one time. He asked me, why don't, why don't they make more movies about us? And I was like, what do you mean about us? And I was like, we just watched a movie with black people in it. And he's like, no, no, I mean, like people like us, like from the country, you know, like, rural black people you know and I was like oh yeah that's well that's a good point you know and that started making me think about being able to write about folklore connected to black people connected to rural spaces and you know that's what I ended up doing it took it took a little while to get there um, but that's what I ended up doing and that's what I'm doing now Um, you know a big part of what my work is and uh, I find it really gratifying um, to, you know, write about and think about Black cultural knowledge and, and traditions and practice in places where a lot of people don't even think Black people exist, which is in rural spaces in the Midwest, you know, so um, that's really important to me. So I think that's a, you know, that's, it's not all of my work because, you know, the way that things shook out, I do a lot of different things, you know, I'm, I'm like a lot of folklorists who teach in, not in folklore departments, in English departments or other kinds of departments, and you do a lot of stuff. You're kind of like, you know, the Swiss Army knife of the department. You know, So I teach a lot of different things. Um, my research is in a lot of different areas, but that's kind of like the core of what I do. And it's the thing that I love the most. Well, and that brings us to the main topic that we're going to discuss today, which is the book that you co-wrote with Elaine Lawless of When They Blew the Levee, mm-hmm. which is focused around this rural African-American community in the Midwest called, called Pinhook. And I'm really curious to hear more about the history of this community. Could you share that, please? Yeah, so um, Pinhook, it was a small village in Southeast Missouri in Mississippi County. You know, the closest sort of larger town to it is a town called Sykeston, Missouri, that people might've heard of Sykeston. But it basically was established as a black village in the early 1940s. And there were a group of five men who came there. They were sharecroppers in Tennessee, and they came to Pinhook looking to buy land and start establish a place where they could live. And essentially like live, farm for themselves, and create a community. And they did that. They came and they bought land. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy for Black people to buy land in Southeast Missouri at the time. And it turned out that the land that they bought was inside of a floodway. Um, when they first started to work on it, it was um, swamp land. It wasn't, it was land that nobody wanted, essentially. And they cut down trees and they drained it and they made it into, you know, actually really, really uh, productive farmland um, over a period of time. They brought their families there. Other Black people came and they built a community and it was, a, you know, by all accounts, a thriving, successful community. For many years, at some point, uh, over 100 people lived there. They had, you know, stores and things like that, you know. So it had, um, at the time, you know, when the the human-made disaster, I will call it, that that destroyed that place happened, it was, you know, there were fewer people living there than there had been in its heyday. But like a lot of, you know, it's it's no different than a lot of Black towns in, in the Midwest that had this sort of high point and then over time, you know, as younger people moved away and that sort of thing, like they became a little bit smaller. 
so at the time that that the breach of the levy happened there were probably around 50 people living in Pinhook at that time but yeah I mean when we started Elena and I started doing this project and we didn't before we knew it was a book before we knew what it was when we were just trying to find out what had happened we talked to you know everybody that we could and the way that they generally described Pinhook was that it was a place where family meant a lot right like it was a place where people a lot of people who lived there were related to each other uh, or they'd known each other for generations I mean it was just sort of really a tight community it was a place where, you know, you worked hard, but people shared with each other. People took care of each other. People made sure, you know, everybody could, had something to eat. They made sure, you know, they did everything that was necessary to sort of make sure that everybody in the community was doing okay. And it was the kind of place where people didn't lock their doors or anything. You know, kids ate wherever they ended up at the night, you know, like wherever the group of kids ended up. And, and I heard a lot of stories about, you know, people passing through they would invite them in and they would have them stay for the night, give them dinner and breakfast the next morning, you know, that sort of thing, which is kind of like how they treated us when we first, when we first, uh, you know, met them and, and sort of became aware of the whole story. I mean, the first day or was the evening I ever talked to Deborah, who became our close um, collaborator on this project, Deborah Robinson. The first night that I, we talked to her, she invited us home to her house and we went home to her house. And I don't think we had dinner that night, but I think they cooked something up and we, we had like something, I don't think it was like a full fledged dinner, uh, but she invited, uh, you know, like a brother and her sister, like people came over to talk to us. So, you know, by the time we left, it was 1030 or something. And we had talked to a bunch of members of their family, you know, even though they're, she's living in a house in Sykeston uh, with her mother and her sister they were temporarily housing there, you know, but they, everybody came over and talked to us, you know, and they said, when we left, they were like, you could stay here. And we, we said, well, we have a hotel. Like we could go, we have hotel rooms. We'll just go. No, next time you come, you stay here. <laughs> and I, I remember like that, I think that first night I said, well, okay, whatever. And then we left. And then I think later, once we got to, you know, came back again and again and again, I would tell um, Deborah, I would say, Deborah, I kind of need, like, I love, I'm so thankful that you are offering us to stay at your house, but we, I need to go home and like, go back to the hotel and like, think and have like some, you know, alone, you know, alone time or something to process all this. Cause this is, you know, this is like an, a really, it's a big experience for, for us, you know? And so she understood that, but always insisted that we were saying that we were members of the family, you know? And so, yeah, that was, that's the kind of people that they are. They still are like that, you know? I still talk to Deborah and her sister Twan and other people from Pinhook, you know, every once in a while. And every time we talk, it's like we haven't been apart for very long, so. I love this uh, continued friendship, you know, that, that you have, have built with the community there. Um, but you mentioned, right, this man-made disaster, mm -hmm. right, that happened to the residents of, of Pinhook. Can you please walk us through that? Yeah, so this happened in 2011. There was a, a really, really big flood um, on the Mississippi River. It was the Missouri River too, the Ohio River. It was kind of like in uh, sort of flood parlance, they call it a thousand year flood. So this flood happened all through the spring and then in May of 2001 is when it kind of really uh, peaked. So the, the village of Pinhook is 
located inside of a floodway. It's called the Birds Point New Madrid Floodway. It's next to the Mississippi River. So the front side of the um, levee is alongside the river. And then the backside levee is, I think it's probably about five miles away from the river. So in between there is the flood floodway and the town is, is located inside of that. It's part of a number of floodways and uh, there are other, there's a whole bunch of kind of like flood mitigation uh, mechanisms along the Mississippi River, which is called the Mississippi Rivers, River and Tributaries Project. So there's all sorts of things that they have that they use to um, cont- try to control the river, especially when it's in flood state. And so the, the idea is that if the river gauge at Cairo, Illinois, which is pretty much across like uh, to the north and across the river from the floodway, if that reaches 61 feet, then they would operate this floodway, which means they would blow like it's like a two mile crevice in the in the front side levee and let all this water into the floodway. It only ever happened in 1937, I think, is the only other time that it actually was was uh, used. And that's before people from Pinhook ever lived there. So on May 2nd, 2001, 10.02 at night, I believe it was. They ended up what the Army Corps of Engineers called operating the project, which meant to, to dynamite this big crevasse in the front side levee and let, I, I can't remember exactly, it's like 350,000 cubic feet per second of water, I think, goes through that crevice. So you can imagine like the kind of damage that it did. By that time, everybody in Pinhook had gotten out, but they never had according to what they told us, they never had effective notification that 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 was going to happen. The story that they told us was that essentially they were trying to find out whether this was going to happen. Again, something that they never had never happened since they lived there. It flooded. I mean, there were, there was flooding every year, really. It's like what they call backwater flooding because um, this floodway, the South end of it um, until recently it is open. And so flood, flood water would come in the southern end of the floodway and kind of come up by where they are. And they're located about midway between the north end and the south end. But it would be the kind of flooding where, you know, it's kind of like come up to their doorsteps or something like that. It wouldn't destroy their houses. There's only a couple of times in the years that they lived there where water even came into their houses. And I think like 1997 or 1977, a couple of years that they talked about like, oh, the flooding was pretty bad. But it never had been like this. And they didn't know whether the Army Corps of Engineers was going to operate this project, was going to blow this levee or not. And nobody was telling them. And eventually they decided for themselves that we have to get out of here because we don't know what's going to happen. And they ended up, you know, starting to evacuate their stuff on their own with no help from anyone. They had difficulty getting trucks like they tried to rent trucks. There were not many available. They ended up having to use like pickup trucks and tractors and trailers to get as much stuff out as they they could. And it turned out that they only had about a a series of hours, you know, so maybe like three hours, four hours to try to get stuff out of their houses before the roads flooded and they could not get back in. Um, So a lot of stuff was left. I mean, they couldn't save only a fraction of their stuff that they get out. Um, A lot of pictures, a lot of really valuable stuff was destroyed when the, um, when the water came. And when we were there seeing it for the first time, which was several months after this had all happened, you know, there were still cars there. If you went inside of a house, which was kind of a risky proposition at that time, 
what you would see is like houses with mud everywhere. There were still clothes in the closets, but they were covered with mud. There were still diplomas on the wall that were covered with mud. It's kind of like what I imagine Katrina was like, you know, where people just had to leave and then the water came. Their homes are destroyed. They're unlivable. The, the homes are actually underwater for more than two weeks. So they're, they're not habitable. Um, they start going to, you know, the Army Corps of Engineers and FEMA trying to figure out, like, can we get money to rebuild our homes? Can we get money? Like, even money just to, like, be able to live temporarily while they're out of their homes. Well, nothing. They can't get anything um, because it's not a natural disaster. It's a designed operation of a flood mitigation um, mechanism on the river. That's, you know, they were, and so the Army Corps of Engineers would say, well, we did this according to policy. This is what policy told us to do. And that's it, right? So no money. So they go on this campaign to try to get money. They'll talk to anyone who will listen. They're going to the Capitol in Missouri. They're going to, they're talking to their legislators in the area. They're talking, they're sending like stuff packets of, of information to Oprah and to you know, President Obama and like all over the place, just trying to get someone to take up their, you know, their uh, cause and no one does. They're basically fighting on their own. And they, you know, Deborah becomes kind of the, the leader of this, of this campaign and she never gave up. It took eight plus years. She never gave up in all that time. When, and a lot of other people did it like, understandably so there was you know it was a diaspora right like people were dispersed across the midwest when they lost their homes they went other chicago memphis even kansas city st louis stay with their kids stay with other family members you could imagine you know two three four years into this you kind of like just cut your losses and, and and go start a new life but deborah didn't give up and there were a few people that stayed with her um, for that whole time. And it took until 2018. It was the spring of 2018 when finally um, they got a, a community development block grant that came through the state of Missouri and was, they were really helped by um, Catholic Charities of Southern Missouri in Sexton um, and also by Mennonite Disaster Services. The money that they got was not enough to actually buy land and rebuild houses. Without Mennonite Disaster Services, to basically be the project manager and help them buy land, bring in volunteer labor, get a, a lot of donated supplies to help build these houses, it couldn't have happened. So, I mean, there's a lot of sort of detail in, the, in that story that I'm leaving out because it's a, it's a long story. And, um, but it really is um, only, it's not because of the government that any new houses were built and the and you know I should clarify that these new houses there were nine new houses built, none of them are at Pinhook where Pinhook used to be because you can't build at Pinhook anymore. So they were in seven of the houses are in Sykeston in a neighborhood together in Sykeston, Missouri. There were two houses that were built in other places. Um, one was near Charleston, and I can't remember where the other one was. And the, Mr. George Williams' house was near Charleston. He he passed away a couple of years ago. They're small houses, you know, they're the same houses that Mennonite Disaster Services builds for anyone when there's a disaster. They build the same house. You can have like a slightly different configuration of the house, but they're the same square footage, you know, the same, you can get, you can change the number of uh, bedrooms, things like that, but 
basically it's a rectangle house, a ranch house. They're super well built, but they're not, it's not fancy houses or anything. You know, it's, it's a house that's meant to, it's designed so that just about any volunteer workers can build it. Right. So it can't be complicated. And they build that same house to make it simple like that. And in this case, they were Amish workers who built those houses for them uh, in 10 weeks, 10 weeks in the spring of 2018. So that was, you know, that was the end in a way, I guess that was the end of the ordeal, but um, you know, it wasn't really the end of the ordeal. And it, and I, I still don't believe Elaine and I both, we don't believe that, you know, they got justice because what they always wanted was to be able to rebuild their town. And whether it was at that location or whether it was another location outside of the floodway, they wanted to rebuild the town. And, and we had, I just, I remember in those days, like I had this kind of fantasy. Elaine and I would talk about it. Like we're, one day we're going to go back there with our cameras and our recorders and everything. And I'm going to record hammers, you know, like, you know, the bang of hammers as they're building these new houses in a place out in the country, you know, outside of the floodway. Well, I mean, that kind of happened. It was just, it was in Sykeston. Well, as you know, right, like the focus of the podcast is like environmental topics, right, within this intersection of folklore. Mm -hmm. And I feel that the whole theme of the Pinhook disaster, right, is that of environmental injustice, right, but on top of racial injustice, mm -hmm. right, with, mm -hmm. with this community here in, in Pinhook. As you said, they had only a couple of hours to gather their belongings and they have been asking, is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? So, I mean, how does the Army Corps of Engineers, right, who are who are running, right, this, this whole project, how do they not uh, notify communities in the flood zone, right? Especially since Pinhook is known to be in the flood zone, right? I guess that's the million dollar question, right? And so this theme of just overlooking, right? African-American small community in a flood zone and not notifying them and not providing any help to get them out. And so is that something that typically happens? Like do other communities receive help to evacuate, right? When, when something like this is being done? This is such a complicated question to answer. I want to start this way by saying, like, I feel like we always tried in, tr in telling the story to try to be, if it's possible, to be fair to the Army Corps of Engineers. And the way that I do that is to say that we found out later it wasn't the Army Corps of Engineers' responsibility to notify them. That was the county sheriff's office. But it was somebody's responsibility to notify them, and nobody did. Technically, the Army Corps of Engineers was just operating based upon a set of rules, you know, that were part of this Flood Control Act, and they did nothing wrong. But, you know, when they were talking about whether or not to do this, to operate this project, to blow this levy, nobody called anyone from Pinhook. Nobody invited them into the conversation. I mean, you can start at the very beginning, and, you know, people will ask a, a Tuan. Um, who's Deborah's sister, will always talk about how people would ask them when, you know, in the years after when they were trying to, when they were involved in their campaign, people would say, well, why'd you live down there anyway? Well, the answer to that question is because they were Black. Because when they came, when their, their 
fathers and grandfathers came to that area trying to buy land, it was the only place that black people could buy land. Right. So, I mean, there's always these questions like when you come up against like environmental injustice and people sort of act like, well, those people must just be living next to that chemical plant because they want to or something like that. Right. And you don't think about the the sort of structural and, and systemic kinds of, of factors that play into where people actually live. Right. Where people are forced to live. And it's always sort of talked about as if it's a choice. The people who lived in Pinhook, once they got their town established, like, of course, that was their place. And people wanted to live there because it was a great place. It was, they, you know, they talked about being able to live there and be free from the harms of, of uh, uh, discrimination. They didn't have to live in segregated parts of, of a city, et cetera. You know, like, so they kind of, they had their own place. But to begin with, they lived there because it's the only place that was available to them. And they had to make it into a place that was good for them. What they were given or offered was essentially a swamp. What was sometimes referred to as swamp beast, you know, like it was a known sort of plot of land that wasn't, you know, um, wasn't land that anybody else wanted. So you start with that. And then all of these, you know, sort of questions about the decision-making um, the notification, um, the way that they're treated after this even happened. I think that there are um, lots of things that point to them being treated less than fairly, possibly because they're a, a Black town and because they're Black people. They never said that. They never made that claim. I asked them a lot and they almost always said, well, we don't, we're not going to say that. I mean, it actually sort of depended on who you asked. I guess I would say that it was mostly women who were running the campaign. They were really, really, really aware of how people might see them. And they did not want to be seen as like complaining or crying racism. To, to them, they thought that would, that would undercut their argument and that would make people turn away from them, which also shows they're living in an environment where they understood that if you made an appeal to racism that white people would not help you anymore or white people would turn away from you. And so that's a big part of why I think that's me, but that's a big part of why they, they didn't say that, why they didn't articulate it. Um, you know, so I just think, you know, down the line, there are ways to think about and talk about why this happened that can be attributable to race. I mean, we were asking this question, how could something like this happen? Which is the, basically the question that you asked and the question that everybody asked when, when I talk about this question is like, well, how many people were there? And I think underlying that question is like, well, maybe there were so few people that they didn't know that there was a town there or something like that, right? And that, of course, is not true. But there's a way in which, even though I would argue that Pinhook it, it was a place that couldn't have been un, not known about, there's no way that could have happened. It's, it still was a place that could be overlooked or could be like erased to the people who were making these decisions because it was a black town, because it, black people aren't supposed to be in the country. And this was a sort of swath of rural land, which was, it was not meant for habitation. It was supposed to be farmland. It was, it's the kind of land that's used either to extract resources from for towns or to, you know, put something that's unwanted. So put this water there that you're trying to get rid of so you can make the river navigable again. It wasn't a place where people are supposed to be living. 
even though there were people living there, even though Pinhook was on the map. But time after time, when we talked to other people, they tried to talk about how Pinhook wasn't like, we didn't know about it. We didn't. Know. And, and then Pinhook would people would be like, yeah, they knew. They definitely knew, right? So we only interviewed one person officially of official capacity who was part of the whole sort of like bureaucratic uh, machine that was part of this. And it was the, the judge who overheard the case when, the, when Missouri sued the Army Corps of Engineers. So the state of Missouri sued the Army Corps of Engineers to try to stop them from blowing the levy. And they did this, the argument that they made had nothing to do with Pinhook. It was basically like, um, I think there were two points and one was that to operate the project would be a violation of the Administrative Procedures Act and then that it would violate the Environmental Protection Act. So we wanted to talk to this guy whose name was Stephen Limbaugh. I don't know if he's still the uh, district judge there, U.S. judge, um, cousin of uh, Rush of the late Rush Limbaugh. And uh, their, um, I think it's their grandfather's name was on the state courthouse. I think it was called the Stephen R. Limbaugh State or uh, Federal Federal it's a Federal Courthouse. Anyway, it was brand new at the time. We went in there, brought all our equipment, our cameras and stuff in there. And he was very nice. He agreed to do an interview with us. And um, we were talking to him about the case. And he, the other thing he did was he gave us all the paperwork from the case. And so I just remember he came into the room. We were talking and we basically asked him, like, well, did anyone say anything about Pinhook during this whole case, you know, like as a reason maybe <laughs> to not flood this, uh, to operate this project? And yeah, somebody said something about it. And he started to flip because he had this big pot stack of papers from the case. And he started to flip through it, flip through it, flip through it. And he didn't find anything. And then he just went on <laughs> to the next thing. And uh, I think maybe Elaine asked him like, wait a minute. And, and he goes, you know, he just, he just avoided the question. And then, you, you know, of course, later, he gave us that stack of papers and I went through the whole thing from beginning to end. And there was never any testimony about Pinhook. There was no, Pinhook was never mentioned as far as I could see. It was marked on a map in one of those sheets of paper in that giant pile of paper, but no one ever talked about it. They talked about people living in the floodway, but they never mentioned the town. They never mentioned how many people it was always sort of like expressed like it was just an insignificant number of people or whatever. And so, yeah, in, in the book, we we make this argument that, you know, there's this erasure of black of, of a black town in this place. Number one, because, you know, it's a rural space, which essentially is understood of understood as a place to extract resources for um, cities, essentially, or places where more people live. And then because rural spaces, black people aren't supposed to be in rural spaces and the Midwest. And so there's this kind of erasure of these folks. And then afterwards they were erased as well, right? Because it was just like, no, don't want to talk to you. Can't do anything for you. Goodbye. And that was basically the way that they were treated after this happened by people in official capacity of the federal government. Tuan told a story of going to a meeting with Army Corps of Engineers and there were farmers there. There were some white farmers because there were lots of white farmers who had land in the floodway as well. And they actually filed a separate, well, it wasn't separate. I mean, they, they just brought this class action lawsuit that the people of Pinhook were never asked to join. And I don't think ever did. But anyway, they were all there at this meeting. And a representative of the Army Corps of Engineers comes out and presents this um, claim form. Says, you know, here's how you fill out the claim form, blah, 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 blah. 
And then people start to raise their hands. And he says, I did not come to answer any question. I came to tell you how the how to fill out this form. Good night. And he walked out off the stage. And they were just like, what? <laughs> and that's like pretty indicative of how you know they were treated by the government. And this form that they they were saying that they could fill out was basically to say that the Army Corps of Engineers had um, basically had done an action that was arbitrary and capricious, which is the only criteria that they have to meet to do anything that they do. Basically can't sue the Army Corps of Engineers or make a claim against them because as long as they have a reason to do something, then they're okay. You have to prove that they didn't have a reason. Not that the reason was wrong, but that they just did it in an arbitrary and capricious manner, which is pretty impossible to do. And even if you did that and you did, let's say, get some money from them, you had to give up your right to sue, or at least that's how the, the Pinhook people understood it, right? So they were like, well, we don't want to do that because we don't want to give up our right to sue. And then later they decided they didn't want to sue because they thought that if they sued, then that would keep them from having other avenues towards money. So, I mean, they just found themselves in like these really, really kind of narrow avenues to try to get help. I remember asking Deborah once, like, why don't you get a lawyer? Let me help you get a lawyer. Essentially, what she said is, my lawyer is God. <laughs> I got the best lawyer in the world, and I don't have to pay him. Uh, and he doesn't take anything. And I was like, well, I, can't, I can't beat that. But I mean, I think, you know, was, there was this feeling on their part that they had to be so careful about how they were trying to get their money to get this what they thought was rightfully owed to them because the whole thing was so precarious and it could be overturned at any moment as soon as they felt like they were making headway things fell in on them and it really was like that until you know I don't know there were probably three different times where Deborah texted me and said hey I think something's something might be happening we might be getting some money and I was like, yeah, and there was one time in particular where we all, Lane and I, I called Lane. I was like, oh my God, I think it's going to happen. And in each one of those cases, it fell through. In one case, they got a, a fairly sizable community development block grant. When they got the grant, they needed to find their own land. All everything that it took to sort of like get the land and make sure it was right. But they had to do that themselves, which they didn't have any help. So they did that. They found some land someone who's willing to sell them some land. It was kind of going through. That's when she told us, got excited. It fell through because the siblings of this person, of this, this white family, found out that this land was going to go to a, a, a bunch of Black people, and they did not want to sell it to them. And so they pulled, the, pulled it out. They did not do uh, the transaction. And that was just one of the times when it fell through. You know, So that's the kind of thing that they were up against and that they felt like, they had to be really careful about like not letting people know who they were because they would find out they were black and pull the rug out from under them. People would find out, think they were accusing people of being racist or whatever and pull the rug. You know, so all this stuff was a part of that whole process. That's just tragic. I mean, the whole story from then till now, right? And the fact that it's still unresolved is just mind boggling, especially here we are, right? 2022. And it's been, what's it, like 11 years at this point or more? Or at least, yeah. Yeah, 11 years. Just, well, and you know, you, you asked me, at, I mean, the real question you asked me is like, um, is this the way it happens to folks when this happens? You know, um, 
And I can say that I have talked about Pinhook in a lot of different places at conferences and, you know, giving talks and everywhere, every time I've ever talked about it, someone came up to me afterward and said, did you hear about this town? It happened to this town too. And they have almost always been mostly towns of indigenous towns, towns of other BIPOC folks or towns of that consists of poor white people. You know, so there were always people who didn't have political power, who didn't have financial power. So it's it's happened a lot in the history of this country and in Canada. A lot, of, I've had a lot of people tell me that's especially a lot of indigenous communities in Canada getting destroyed to make a dam or something like that, right? Well, I want to kind of touch on a phrase that you've repeated a few times so far, which is that it's perceived that. Black people are not meant to be in the country, you know, are, are, are not meant to live in the country. Mm-hmm. And I want to kind of dive into that, right? Because this is like your whole research interest, right? Is this rural environmental connection with people of color, mm-hmm. right? Can you share with us, you know, more about your thoughts and, and, and feelings about this? Yeah. Um... I can start off with just thinking about, you know, the history of Black people, you know, in this country and where Black people have lived in this country. I mean, for the majority of the history of Black people in this country as enslaved people, as free people, they lived in the rural South, right? They lived in the Black Belt of the rural South. And, uh, but we know that in the 20th century, there was a, a very large migration of black people from the rural South to Northern centers, uh, um, urban centers like Pittsburgh and Detroit and St. Louis and Chicago and places like that, right? And um, I think, you know, when we think about, you know, sort of popular culture and representation of black people in popular culture, like these days, the majority of the ways that you see black people represented, the majority of the ways that we understand black people is as basically living in urban spaces, right? Like even, What's the euphemism for for like black music, black clothing? It's urban, right? Like, so you're listening to an urban radio station, you're listening to a radio station that plays black music, right? So it's become sort of synonymous with blackness, urban urbanity and blackness. Sometimes though, when people do think about um, black people in rural spaces, they think about the rural South, right? So they think about Alabama and places like that. And it is true that they're, you know, in, in Mississippi, in Alabama, in Georgia, there are certainly lots of places where um, you can find towns that are almost entirely Black. And it's actually really interesting. I was just in Mississippi a couple of weeks ago in Sunflower County in Tallahatchie County. You would, ha- you, you know, you come across a town that was entirely Black and you could tell it's like really, really poor, um, not much like infrastructure or amenities or anything like that. And then you would, right next to it would be a town that's, that's all white. It would be all beautiful and painted like your sort of picturesque um, southern town or whatever. And that was kind of like the way it was in those two counties, which was really interesting to me. But I mean, if you asked anyone, you know, in in the Mississippi Delta, uh, are there black people in the country? They'd be like, oh, yeah, of course there are. Right. But when you think about the Midwest, so Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, if they think about black people in those places, they think about them in cities. And yet there is um, a real history of Black people uh, living in rural spaces together in villages and towns in all of those places. And Oklahoma, you know, maybe more than any other, you know, Oklahoma is famous for having a, a ton of, of Black townships 
um, Boley, Oklahoma, and others. Kansas has Nicodemus, which is a, maybe the most famous uh, Black town in the Midwest. Uh, my dad's family comes from a Black town called Pennytown in central Missouri, but it's only one of the Black townships that were in that county, Saline County in central Missouri. So there's a, a great history of that. And there's a great history of Black farming that has been lost partially because of the migration, but partially because of federal farming kind of practices in terms of like funding farmers and and lending practices and all of that. And I think uh, the number of Black farmers has decreased by something like 90%, you know, in the last 60 years or something like that, right? So we just don't really live in a sort of moment in terms of our culture where we think about Black people being in rural spaces, right? And so yet to me, that's like erasing a whole bunch of Black people who do live in small towns in Missouri. You know, like so many of my relatives live in small towns in Missouri, live in small towns in Kansas. So these places do exist and there's traditional knowledge there. I did a project a few years ago with urban farmers in the Twin Cities where I live. It was really fascinating. So these are farmers in Minneapolis who were like all these abandoned properties or whatever, they're turning them into farms and they're doing all kinds of farming. There was one organization called Project Sweetie Pie and Michael Cheney's the guy who runs it and he's fantastic, just like an amazing guy. Anyway, when I talked to these farmers, they often talked about the skills to farm are something that our grandparents knew how to do. It's traditional knowledge that they had. When they came to the cities, like it didn't get passed on somehow. So to farm in cities now for us is a way to reconnect to our traditional knowledge that is our birthright, right? That we lost, that was taken from us. And so we want to like rekindle this and reconnect to our ancestors in this way. And for them, it was an act of political empowerment. Like they basically thought, said, we cannot really work on revitalizing our neighborhoods and our communities in the city until we got to start with how we feed ourselves, how we nourish ourselves. So um, they talked about it that way. And that made me think a lot about this idea of sort of the lost connection and the lost traditional knowledge, which when you go to any of these small places, small towns um, where Black people live, you see Black people farming, you see Black people uh, canning, you see them making these traditional dishes and everything like that, that would have been common, you know, 50 years ago, 75 years ago, et cetera. So I think, and I'm not the only one, I want to say this too, like I'm not the only scholar, there's lot, there's plenty of scholars, um, but yeah, there's, there's lots of interest amongst Black scholars, I think, in, the, in these folks, these communities, and then even in the importance of land and getting land back, right? Like, because a lot of this land was dispossessed, right? I mean, you think about Tulsa, right? And how, you know, a prosperous Black Wall Street, right? Like it was destroyed precisely because Black people had money, they were prosperous, they were um, successful, and white people resented them for it and wanted that land and took that land. And this happened all over the Midwest. You know, now you got lots of younger Black activists who are like, let's get land. When when I was at the Black Midwest Project had like a, a conference in Minneapolis a couple of years ago, and I was talking to some younger artists and stuff, and they were like, hey, we're buying land in Nebraska. I'm like, what do you mean? We're like buying acres. We're going to start, like we're going to move there. We're going to start farming there. And I was like, this is really awesome. And so there were a lot of people who were, who were really thinking that way. And I'm thinking like, let's move back to 
the rural spaces. Let's let's like go back and become rural people again, you know? So, I mean, I, I love that idea. And I, I think it begins by understanding that we've always been people who were connected to the land from the time we were brought here um, through the all the rest of the time that we've been here. Well, this idea of like an environmental connection, right? This connection to land, this connection to place, right? And how it builds community. We've been talking about everything from farming practices and food ways, right? There's just this theme of perseverance that is continuing. And this is something that the residents and community of Pinhook have try to implement in their own ways you, mm -hmm. you had shared with this pinhook day you explain to us about what that that is and what that looks like yeah so um, pinhook day is a traditional homecoming and they have it once a year <clears throat> they have it um, usually the same um, weekend as memorial day and it's built around food it's built around community it's built around worship there's usually lots of music and dancing there's remembrance, there's celebration of people, you know, who are still living, people who they've lost, people who are going off, who graduated from high school and are going to college, people in the military. It's just been all the times that I've been, it's been really fascinating and inspiring. And it, you could see that it was, especially when, um, before the houses were built, that it was a way that they were trying to maintain their memories and their tradition and their community it was kind of like when they didn't have a place anymore, that that became the place wherever they were together, engaged in this, you know, ritual and ceremony. And, you know, like an interesting example of the kinds of things that they would do, you know, do things like cakewalks and all the, the women, the older women would make these amazing cakes. And then you would do like this thing where you walk around on these, there were numbers on the floor. And then whenever you stopped, you know, then you would win that cake you know, they would be talking about Miss such and such's caramel cake and like, and they all knew like <laughs> all these, this woman was known for this particular cake and this woman was known for this particular cake, you know, so it was like this real honor to win one of these cakes. There was one time we were at Pinhook Day where they did this. They went through the dances that were popular in the years from when they were kids until, you know, like now or whatever. And so they would play the music and then a bunch of people would jump up and start doing that dance, you know, and it was, I don't know, it was like amazing, but it was a way when I thought we thought about it later, you know, it's like this way of showing the continuity of their community and how they'd grown up together and the things that they'd shared together. Um, it just was like, they had so many really effective ways of performing and demonstrating their togetherness. And obviously like when you, eat together too you know so you do all this stuff and then you sing together and you sing religious songs together um, and then you share a meal together and then people get up and talk about you know their experiences remembrances testimony whatever it just you know really functions in that way and uh, for the times that we went we were always really I think inspired by it and you could just see how much togetherness there was and people had came from all over the Midwest because again, like there was no pinhook place necessarily where, you know, normally they would have had this out at pinhook, the whole thing. And they had all these, um, these big iron pots that they would have like fried fish in and like, you know, they used to talk about when we did pinhook day back in the day, we'd have all these pots and we do all this blah, 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 blah. 
And uh, but they were ended up doing it, you know, in Sykeston or in other small towns around um, at VFWs and wherever they could find space to, you know, get 200 people together. So this was a, you know, it wasn't makeshift, but it was a, it was a way of trying to do something in uh, and take the place of this traditional gathering that they had had at their at their home place. And I think what was like the best thing that happened that I saw was in 2018, the same year that the houses were built, the project manager on this, he, in addition to the houses, he built a picnic um, shelter at Pinhook. So at Pinhook today, like if you go there today, all the houses that were destroyed, you know, like for a long time, the ruins were there, you know, there were just like ruined houses there. That's all gone now. Um, the only structure that's there is that picnic shelter and it's a 20 by 60 picnic shelter. So it can be over top of a lot of people. And so now they can have Pinook Day can be out there. So in 2018, they did get those kettles out and they did fry up fish on a Saturday afternoon. And we ate like we ate good. It was so good. <laughs> I mean, it was the best. And, uh, you know, we were out of the out of the sun and everybody was having a great time. And I remember that Jeff, you know, was talking to Deborah and he said, I didn't have enough money to build you a floor. I'll come back and I'll put, we'll pour concrete, we'll put a floor under this so it'll be even better. And she said, no, 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 no. She said, I want to take the, my shoes off and put my feet in the ground. I don't want there to be a floor. I want to be able to feel the ground. And he said, okay, okay, <laughs> then we'll leave it like it is. And like, that was to me the kind of demonstration of how important that place was. I mean, they were migrants, you know, their families had migrated there, but once they got there, that place gave them sustenance, that place gave them a home, it was protection, it was family, it was togetherness, it was all of these things, right? And I've been talking to some friends of mine a lot about, you know, I have a friend who's writing a lot about migration and borders lately, and we're talking a lot about land and, you know, sort of settler colonialism, and I, I think a lot about how you know, Black folks who were brought to this country, who for so long never had their own land, then they get freedom and our promised land. And then of course that's reneged on. And then they finally get some land in some of these places, like these towns, um, these, these hamlets. And I love, the, I love that word hamlet, you know, because it just so much suggests a kind of safe place, right? And then in some way, shape or form, they lose those places. But when they have them, it's safety, you know? I mean, so many people talked about Pinhook that way. Nobody gave us any trouble out here. We had what we needed. We didn't need to go into those towns and go in the back door of a restaurant or go sit in the balcony of the movies. We, we had stuff here that we, we had our entertainment here. We could get our food here. We grew it ourselves, you know? So what they were doing in their town in some way protected them or allowed them to avoid going into white spaces and being, you know, terrorized or humiliated or all the things that came along with Jim Crow and, and racism. So these places became extremely important. That is so powerful, Todd. That is so powerful. Um, I want to kind of connect this idea of place and safety and community with another project that you've been working on, right? You had talked about this misconceived perception of like urban, right? Always being connected to African-American communities, right? Mm -hmm. 
African American tra uh, tradition and culture. And but you are working on the urban art mapping project, correct? Mm -hmm. Since George Floyd, right? Mm -hmm. Can you share it with us, right? This this project that you're 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 working on, and how this street art mapping project, right, and urban and community is a different connection to land and to, to space. And, yeah. Yeah, so um, yeah, it's Urban Art Mapping Project, and I work on this with two other faculty members at the University of St. Thomas, Heather Shari and Paul Laura. We have a team of mostly undergraduates. Sometimes we have a graduate student with us or two or three, um, but we've been doing this project since two, actually 2018. So when I finished, when we finished the book, um, we started, I started working on this with, with Heather and Paul in that fall. And we were just really interested in, so Paul's a geographer, Heather's an art historian and I'm a folk artist. And we were interested in those three aspects of street art in general. So this was before George Floyd, right? And we were working in, um, in a neighborhood in St. Paul called Midway and it's, uh, it's a neighborhood I live in. It's uh, a neighborhood that has changed a lot in the last few years. Um, it's under, you know, sort of like pressure in terms of demographic shifts and gentrification and it had a light rail that was built that went through it and and then a few years ago minnesota united the soccer team um, in town built a big stadium that's right on the edge of midway and so there's just a lot of changes happening in this neighborhood and people i think were feeling and we were interested in how street art you know art in the neighborhood how that could be an expression of people's feelings about their neighborhood and how it was changing and you know, Paul as a geographer really brought this the space issue to us. So it came back into this project, another project for me in thinking about how did the location of pieces of art matter? How could we think about them differently? And, and so we were really looking for those connections. Like first it was sort of very simple, like where is art, art located in Midway? Then we wanted to talk to people who had made the art and think about what they were thinking. People whose buildings the art was on, how did they think about it? People who lived in the neighborhood, did they see the art? Did it make any difference to them? Did they think about it in any particular way? You know, one artist had told us specifically, I want to create art in this neighborhood that is representative of the people who are moving in. So I wanted to make art that had, you know, Eritrean faces and Somali faces the faces of these new people who are moving into the neighborhood so they could see themselves as a part of the community. And so we wanted to know, like, did the people see that? Did that, did that mean anything to them? And so that's kind of where we started. And then, um, you know, we were doing that for a couple of years and we moved into a couple of um, adjacent neighborhoods and COVID-19 was the first thing that happened, right? So we couldn't really send our students out to map the art or to talk to people. We couldn't do interviews in person. And, you know, IRB kind of like knocked on our door and was like, hey, hey shut everything down. We started to see on Instagram, I think it was, that there was all the street art that was being created around COVID-19. And so Heather, who was on sabbatical that semester, she started to make a spreadsheet of art that she found on Instagram that had to do with COVID-19 and she got a lot of it. <laughs> and she started to reach out to the artists and they were like, yeah, this is really cool, you know, make this list or whatever. And then we realized like a list or a spreadsheet's not gonna cut it. Like, like, what are we gonna do with this? And so we thought, let's do a database 
that is like accessible online and that people could search and everything. So that's what we started. We started this COVID-19 street art database first. So we started that probably in Mar March of 2020. And then in late May of 2020, George Floyd gets murdered in Minneapolis. And after his murder, there are two sort of centers of the uprising. And one is in Minneapolis at the intersection of Lake Street and Minnehaha. And one is in St. Paul at the intersection of University and Snelling, which is like basically right where we were doing our work in Midway neighborhood. And so that evening of the uprising in um, St. Paul, I live in the neighborhood. I could see the sky glowing red from fires. There were, you know, helicopters flying over right and left, sirens all night long, just up and down the streets, up and down the streets. And about one or one thirty, I told my wife, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to drive out and see what's going on because like, I got to find out what's happening. And she's like, please don't go out, please. Don't. And I was like, no, I'm just, I'll stay in the car. I won't try to go right to the center of it. And I just, I drove around and I could see, you know, like all these buildings on fire and I could see the police everywhere. Police like in riot gear ringed around the target store or something like that. Just protecting, like that was the thing that they were protecting were target stores. But I saw I saw art, I saw graffiti everywhere. And then the next morning I went out again and Heather had gone out as well. And that was the thing that struck us is that we saw art everywhere. And then in the coming days when they people started to put up plywood boards on their windows where they were broken and things like that, more art went up. And we just thought like, it's amazing because it was changing the whole neighborhood. I never thought about this until the day after when I go out on University Avenue and I see art everywhere, like there's graffiti and people are starting to do murals and and a street which in a lot of ways felt had felt alien to me before because it was starting to be dominated by, you know, new buildings, apartment complexes, like um, commercial buildings, which were, you know, it was becoming a sort of pay on to capitalism in a way that made me feel like alienated from it. But then when I saw this art on the next day where all these new buildings had art all over them, and I was like, I actually feel more comfortable in this space now. And it was that people had basically said like, this is our space. Like this whole idea of public space, it doesn't belong to businesses and it doesn't belong to developers and it doesn't belong to people who have lots of money, it belongs to us. And this is an expression of how we're feeling right now. And the initial expression was anger and pain and wanting retribution. I mean, it was just like, it was just really, really, really powerful emotions. And then over time that shifted a little bit, you know, but in this moment of crisis, I really thought like one of the main ways that we can understand what's happening in this moment of crisis is to pay attention to what people are putting on the walls. And so that's why we started to like take pictures and we realized like we can't do this ourselves. This is impossible. Like this must be happening in other cities too. And it was. And so we just put out a call. We, we, we went on social media and we said, everybody take pictures, send them to us. We started the George Floyd database. We made it so that people could upload images to the database. And in those first days, I remember Heather saying like, if we got be awesome if we had like 400 pieces in here and uh there's over 3,000 now you know and it's continuing to grow and and all the time people are coming to us with 
like collections that they've uh, gathered. The Black Lives Matter fence in, in DC, we just connected with this woman, Nadine, who was like the protector and caretaker of that fence. And so all of her images are going to go in the database. So we're working on that now. Um, lots of collections from different towns. We just talked to a group of international journalists and I was like, please tell everyone that you know, <laughs> you know, because like they, our thinking is like, there are still people walking around with images from their phone, right? They didn't think we're important, but we think it's important and we don't care whether it's duplicates of some piece that someone's already taken. We, we want as many pictures of every piece of street art as possible so we can see how these things change over time. Where we're trying to go right now with the project while continuing to do all this preservation and documentation is like, we wanna start thinking about the Black Lives Matter pieces that happen in all these cities. And you know, like a lot of these places, the, the pieces are faded and even gone, but we can still go and talk to people. We can gather images. We can sort of think about what ask people about what the pieces meant in their communities and why they were important. It sounds like an incredible project, right? It sounds like you need more hands working on it. We do, yeah. I mean, <laughs> we, we always need more people and money. And Well, besides this amazing project, what else are you working on currently or what is coming up in the future for you? I've been um, writing a lot about ethnography and a failure. It's a kind of extension of feminist approaches to ethnography thinking about positionality, thinking about where we are in the ethnographic project, but also like allowing ourselves to understand. So for example, in the Pinhook project, I think there are all these places where I can point to where there were kind of like failures, things that I wanted to happen, things that I thought would happen, things that I hoped would happen that didn't happen. In fact, like <laughs> kind of disastrous in the way that they didn't happen or ways that I wanted to be connected to the people that we were working with and realizing like these relationships that we were trying to build, that they weren't what we thought that they were, even though we were trying and everybody was like, we're all open and we're all genuine and all of that, you know, but they're just ways in which it comes up short, that it can't do the thing that you want it to do. So anyway, these are just elements of ethnography that we have to accept. And so I wrote a piece that it'll come out, I think it'll come out in a journal of folklore research. Yeah, so that'll be coming out soon. And so I think maybe I'm thinking of going in that direction. So maybe writing more about um, ethnography and failure. I have an idea, another idea about a particular kind of black ethnography that I wanna write about. So, but I also have like a hundred things that I want to write about with the George Floyd project too. So, you know, you just get to it when you get to it. Both are which deserving of their own episodes. I mean, yeah. the concept of ethnography and failure sounds incredibly interesting. Well, look uh, for that. Look for that in Jiffer. It should be out, I think, in a couple months. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Todd, for talking with me today. Um, for sharing these experiences um, and the work that, you know, really important work that you have done and are continuing to do. My thanks to Todd for speaking with me today. If you wish to get in contact with him or want to know more about his work, you can find links to his research and works in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and see you next time. Mm -hmm.